Good morning, Henson. It's good to be together again. I've had the joy and privilege of speaking from this pulpit now for a number of years. It's always a warm welcome. Cool, cool Portland. The lows right now in Dubai are in the 90s. And uh, it rains most years. I mentioned that this morning. It's a very interesting time to live in the Middle East. You know, a number of years ago, Hal David and Burt Bacharach wrote a song. Maybe some of you are old enough to remember what the world needs now is love, sweet love. You know that tune? What the world needs now is... Nobody, nobody's old enough to remember it, I guess. It's a silly song. I'm all for love. Who is it? But is it really what the world needs now? It certainly needs something. The world in which I live in the Middle East seems to be going a bit crazy. Iran, just 80 miles to our north, menaces countries with its huge army and growing threat of nuclear power. Directly to our south, Yemen convulses with unrest, breeds radical terrorists. To our west, Bahrain struggles with uprisings and riots. Further west to Egypt, seen the departure of the president, run now by the military after the departure of the Islamic government. People are hoping for something better, wondering what's going to happen. Actually, refugees from Egypt are beginning to flood out of that country. Some are in my house right now as I speak. Further west, Libya is torn by civil war that's become tribal war. Syria, which was just a couple years ago, a place that we took short-term mission trips to now, has become an utter disaster, torn by war. and Awful, awful, terrible things being perpetrated on the people of Syria. Other countries nearby us seethe Saudi frets. Our small country, the United Arab Emirates, seems to be an oasis of calm in the eye of the storm. You know, as one listens to the rioters on the streets in Cairo, Damascus, and you see interviews on CNN, what one hears is not a plea for love, sweet love, merely a consistent plea for good leadership. The common complaint among those who've rioted are about bad leadership. They point to the leadership that's corrupt, leadership that's cruel, leadership that is self-serving. Where do we go for good leadership? It's a question right here in our own country. As we see breakdowns of leadership and government circles. Certainly, certainly not from those who vie from power. We don't go to good leadership for those in places of dictatorships and potentates and kings. We we long for the good leadership that 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 is represented, I think, in the Bible. The Bible certainly speaks to good leadership. Our prayer is that God would give us the leadership we need, not the leadership we deserve. And even in our families, we long for good leadership. 
Husbands who love and lead their their wives as Christ loves the church. Wives who are happy to submit to wise leadership of husbands as unto Christ. But how rare that leadership is. In our churches where pastors and elders lead and congregations know how to follow. It's a crying need for co- from coast to coast. Our passage today has to do with leadership, both good and bad. If you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 6. The ministry of Jesus in the first five chapters of the book of Mark mostly involve two things. It involves teaching people about the kingdom of God and about showing people through different miracles and deeds that he was God. Michael was right to comment on Elisha and the demonstration of his power from God. Jesus wanted people to know that his authority came to him as the divine son of God. Jesus never, never used his power To make his life better. Jesus used his authority to show people, to demonstrate to people who he was. His authority was not to give heaven on earth to people. Which is often, unfortunately, the common understanding of those who want to repeat miracles in today's world. No, the demonstration of the authority of Jesus was to prove his divinity. So... He showed his authority over sickness as he healed the paralytic. He showed his authority over the law as he wrangled with the Pharisees about the Sabbath. He showed his authority over the spiritual realms as he cast out demons. He showed his authority over nature when he stilled the storm. He made it clear that he was even Lord of death itself when he raised Darius' daughter from the dead. And then, right before the text we read today, he sent out his disciples to do ministry, showing that he had power and authority to give authority to his followers. Jesus is Lord. But though that's true, there are competing kingdoms. Showing other kinds of leadership, they aggressively defend themselves. We see one of those in Mark six fourteen. Our story starts... With that thing which most gets leaders' attention, popularity, someone else's popularity. The miracles performed by the disciples have created a buzz and a speculation about just who Jesus was. Starting in verse 14. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are in work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, 
gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I give it to you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guest, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. And when the disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in the tomb. Well, the people in Herod understood correctly that Jesus was a religious figure. They got that part right. Everything else about Jesus they got wrong. Herod was a superstitious man. He had his own ideas about who Jesus was. There are personal reasons. He was haunted with a guilty conscience. He had murdered John the Baptist and thought Jesus was John the Baptist come back to life, a sort of a, a ghost. In verse 17, Mark's use of a literary device, a flashback, gives us a closer look at this bizarre, dysfunctional Herodian household and John's murder. Herod, we see, as it turns out, was an adulterous and semi-incestuous leader, having taken his own brother's wife. John called Herod, the ruler of the country, to face up to his sin, despite the cost to John himself in jail. You know, after living in the Middle East for a number of years, we've come to realize the courageous thing it is to call down a king in a place without a rule of law. Now, oddly, in the text, the person who takes offense is not Herod, but his wife, the conniving Herodias, who longed to put John to death for this insult. But she couldn't, since Herod feared John and protected him in jail, even listened to him. Herod, apparently, loved John's sermons. In my mind's eye, I imagine Herod in the dungeon listening to John through the bars. His own private preacher. Not that, not that he ever put anything into action that he heard, but, but John was such a good speaker. You know, I think Herod is like many filling church pews around the world. Listening, never repenting. Entertained, never believing. They think the measure of a good sermon is how amused or touched or entertained or affirmed they are. They leave the church saying, much like we see in Herod in verse 20, we heard him gladly, not knowing that when the word is preached, it is they who fall under judgment. It is Herod who falls under judgment. The person in the pew hearing truth is not judging the sermon. The sermon judges them, especially by whether or not they change. Henson, 
You are forewarned by Herod. It is not enough to sit in on sermons, to listen, to be amused, to enjoy, to learn even. No, if you do not repent, if you do not turn, you will be trapped just like Herod by your sin and judged. You know, to look at Herod's party is to look at the man. I mean, first of all, who throws his own birthday party? I mean, Herod thinks he's commemorating his birth. He's only living out the sin that was his from birth. His father, remember, murdered babies in Galilee about the time he was born. Tried to kill the baby Jesus, the one the Magi had called the king of the Jews. The apple has not fallen far from the tree. Herod is just like his murderous father, Herod the Great. We see that Herod's a snob. He's invited the elite of society, nobles, military commanders, leading men. We already know that Herod's a lecher. He's married his brother's wife. But in verse 22, we, we see he's prone to child abuse. This young girl who dances is probably about 13 years old. This is not a tap dance. This is a Middle Eastern sleazy dance. And after he presents a girl, the daughter of his wife, his niece, for all the men to ogle, then he promises her rashly, in verse 23, perhaps drunkenly, up to half his kingdom. And it's then, in the midst of his pride and his arrogance and his sin, he's caught as the weakest of leaders. The girl manipulates is manipulated by her mother in verse 25. She requests John the Baptist's head on a platter. Even Herod then has no concern for the fact that he's involving a child in a grisly murder. As the girl serves, serves up John's head on a platter, it represents a meal of bad leadership. Death itself. That's where bad leadership goes, you know. And don't you know, don't you know that in the Jerusalem press the next, next day in the gossip column, this made great press. It's the kind of birthday party the world loves to talk about. A besotted, selfish, elitist, pornographic event filled with arrogance and pride and the abuse of power. Does the Bible sound relevant or what? The Bible is more relevant than tomorrow's newspaper. Herod, trapped by his pride, the desire to save face, well, at what cost? The price he pays is enormous. He goes down in history with the distinction of being the one who executed in prison, in a cell, the greatest prophet ever. Herod at root is that most dangerous and capricious of leaders. He's needy and weak, yet wielding enormous power, seemingly above the law. Do you, do you see here how weak leadership is bad leadership? No matter how much power he wields, Herod is a weak man and a weak leader. His biggest weakness, the most glaring weakness, is his inability to repent He's too weak to say, wait, what, what am I doing? This is murder. This isn't an execution. This is murder. Notice in verse 26, he's 
really, really sorry about this. That's not repentance. That has nothing to do with repentance. It doesn't matter that he's sorry since he kills John anyway. You know, many today confuse being sorry with repentance. There's lots of ways to mimic repentance. Like being caught. Or suddenly realizing I'm facing the consequences of my sin. I'll change, I'll change. This time I'll change. It's a reminder of my teen years, you know. My teen years, I, I, I can't get the proverb out of my head. As a dog returns to his vomit, so a fool returns to his folly. That was me. But being really sorry is not repentance. Repentance is the deep recognition that you're in the wrong, coupled with a humble re- willingness to do what's required to change. That's repentance. How about us? How much do we lose when we try to save face, hide our sins, try and cover up? Christian, the the inability of so many to simply say, forgive me, I'm wrong. Can you help me with a reoccurring sin? The inability to do that has destroyed many a life, many a marriage, many a ministry. Those of you who are here who are not Christians, perhaps perhaps you've come and you're exploring Christianity, you're exploring Christian faith. The folk at Henson want you to know how welcome you are here. You are so welcome. You should know that the Christian believes that there is a Herod in our hearts, all of us. We're all sinners. We're all broken. We're all weak. We all have this Herod in our hearts that wages war on God. Herod, like his father before him, kills that which threatens his rule. That's what the Herod in our hearts desires to do in us, too. And unless, unless you make Jesus Lord, your king, you will continue Herod's ways yourself. Not, not exactly. Not in the same ways. Maybe nobody's calling you king. Maybe you've never murdered anyone. But in other ways. In similar ways, we give up half our kingdoms to MasterCard. We're, we're so busy with jobs, we sacrifice our kids. We're sorry about, about the porn. We're sorry about the fantasy. I'm sorry about the f- affair. We're, we're sorry. We're sorry. Perhaps you aspire to be different than Herod. Let me say there's only one way to break that Herod in our hearts. Only one way. It's to turn to Christ in faith. Trust Him with your life. If you aspire to be different, that must happen. You must humble yourself. Repent. Turn, especially from the sin of unbelief. The most important sin to turn away from is that sin of unbelief in Christ. And when we do that, we humble ourselves even if it means losing faith which I think is probably Herod's greatest problem, his people-pleasing, face-saving sin. May I make a, a shocking statement to some? It doesn't, it doesn't matter if you call yourself a Christian. It doesn't matter if you were born in a Christian home or if your, your parents were Christians or if your grandfather was a Baptist pastor. It doesn't matter what prayer you prayed when you were five or what aisle you walked. If you've never repented of sin, if you've never turned 
from sin and turned to Christ in faith and trust, then you are not a Christian. You can't be. By definition, Jesus came preaching, repent and believe, turn from sin and turn to me. That's Christ's call. So come to him through repentance and belief. Even if you've called yourself a Christian for a long time, don't worry about saving face. After all, look what happened to Herod when he tried to save face. If it becomes obvious to you that you're living a lie. If, if it becomes obvious to you that you've been pretending. Living for yourself rather than for, for Christ. Come to him. No one will be shocked or surprised. In fact, you would be honored for your willingness to turn from a lie. Well, this story of Herod is horrific, but it provides Mark with a sharp relief for the next story that he records, the feeding of the 5,000. Let's read those. Mark 6, 30 through 44. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away to the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away and go into the surrounding countrysides and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy two hundred denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five loaves and two fishes. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. Notice here how Mark jumps out of the flashback into a different kind of party. It's not a birthday party. In fact, there's a sense that Jesus is gathering people here under the specter of death since Herod has murdered John and others seek the life of Jesus. But it's a party in which Mark paints for us a different picture of leadership, one of compassion, one of care. I don't think it's an accident that Mark has set this party up next to the other party. Notice the contrast. There are good reasons why the people are like sheep without a shepherd. I was doing a Bible study with a group of students on campus. And one of the youngest students there uh, piped up and said, well, I know I know why they're sheep without like sheep without a shepherd. Uh, all the people that are supposed to be taking care of them are back at Herod's birthday party. <laughs> yeah. 
in sharp contrast to Herod, Jesus is selfless. Look at verses 30 through 32. Jesus listens to what the disciples have to tell him. He calls for rest. He plans for his disciples to retreat. But he puts aside his plans to care for the people and the disciples. In sharp contrast to Herod, who's invited to the party all the nobles and leaders and commanders. In sharp contrast to Herod, in verse 33, it's the weak, the needy, the hungry. In sharp contrast to Herod, in verse 34, Jesus doesn't entertain the crowd. He's not got, he's not got a performer up singing songs and dancing. He's not looking for their approval in the polls. He, he responds to them with love and compassion. And more importantly, he gives them what without which, if they don't have, they will die. Jesus is serving up life, you see. In verse 34, he teaches them. Their true and greatest need here, by the way, is the word. It's the word of God. It's our greatest need, too. You know, this this passage is often used as a, as a support passage, as a Underlying text for helps ministries or mercy ministries or distributing food, which, of course, is wonderful. But it's, it's kind of not the it's not the first thing he does. The first thing he does is to teach. He's training his disciples about what leadership is in verse 36. He says, you feed them in verse 37. He's not worried about his position, his turf like Herod. He wants others to lead with him. In verses 38 through 40, he gives order to chaos. It sounds very much like Moses in the desert. In verse 41, he prays in acknowledgement of the one who feeds us. His eyes are on God. He remembers the Lord God. Not, Not about what other people think of him. He remembers things that come first. He feeds them with real food in verse 42. But even in this now, don't don't miss Even as Jesus feeds them the bread from heaven, he's reminding them, he's teaching them. This is an image of the children of Israel wandering in the desert. It's reminiscent of the manna in the desert. I don't know about you, but when I hear the phrase like in verse 34, this phrase that says, he taught them many things. I kind of want to jump in a time machine and go back and, and hear. What, what, what was it that Jesus taught? What was there? You know, I suspect if we could do that, get in a time machine, jump back and could speak Aramaic, what we, what we would hear would be stuff that's written that we know. I think what, when the Bible says he taught them many things, the many things are already in the scriptures. Maybe it was later in John chapter 10. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Maybe maybe he taught them about how God cared for the children of Israel in the exodus from Egypt. Maybe, Maybe people wondered if this wasn't the prophecy in Deuteronomy 18 that there would come one like Moses, a prophet, like Moses. Do you think maybe, maybe he taught on Psalm 23? 
I think you mostly know it. But do you see how he's living it out here in scriptures? Do you see how he's modeling Psalm 23? Every, everyone knows Psalm 23. You can, you can walk it through all six verses. All six verses of Psalm 23 are right here. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Jesus satisfies. That's why they ran to him. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. That is what he is actually doing in this text. The text specifically says green pastures. They are beside still waters. You know the you know the psalm. You could probably say it with me. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Jesus is teaching them the word of God. Yea, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff comfort me. John has been murdered. People are plotting to take the life of Jesus. They are in the shadow of death. You know, I I live in a land where so many Christians live in the valley of the shadow of death. Few of my colleagues and friends, few of them, have been spared the traumas of living in the valley of the shadow of death. Psalm 23, verse 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. They pick up 12 baskets of overflow food. Do you not think that that this is a plan? I mean... Believe me, this is not an accident. These passages of Scripture are not just happened to be here. Verse 6, Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the promise Jesus makes in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He sent His only Son, So that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. Psalm 23 is the prophetic voice of King David pointing down through the ages to this moment in the life of Christ. That the leadership of Jesus is the leadership of a shepherd. That's the kind of leadership the world needs now. A servant leader, a shepherd. Hey, what about, what about us? All of us, all of us have some position of leadership in our lives, except for the smallest baby. Some of us have some leadership position. Even our, even our children have leadership roles. I, remind, I reminded Tristan of this when he was young and would grind his younger brother's face in the carpet. Tristan, we use our strength to protect the weak. And now I will use my strength to protect the weak. (laughs) He did not like that logical connection. Do we know how to teach the gospel to others around us? Are we more interested in entertaining? Do we bring order to chaos? Does our leadership actually bring chaos? You can do that with your leadership, you know. Does our leadership call others to faith or do we want to just shift away from leadership? I think it's a terrible thing when Christians 
want to throw off leadership, to not pick up responsibility that God would give us to lead? Do we know how to pray out loud to create thankful hearts? Or do we just complain? Do we worry about turf and what people think about us? Or do we give leadership away humbly? Do we know the Scriptures well enough to live out the Scriptures? Those are all points of leadership. Mark has painted for us a picture of contrasting kingdoms and kings. The first is a kingdom that is selfish and cruel and full of pride. The kingdom of darkness, it ends in death. It's leadership that kills. The other is a kingdom of compassion and care. Leadership of that kingdom is Jesus, who refreshes, who gives life. King Jesus. This passage paints a picture, a micro look at the kingdoms before us. That's what we're about here. You know, just I just want to point out, as we live in ministry in the Middle East, there are many, many in the world who've never heard the message of the gospel. They're lost and without hope in the world. They face a real and eternal hell without Jesus. I want you to know that the best thing that you can do, Henson Baptist Church, the best thing that you can do for the work of those who have gone out is to become a healthy, vibrant, cross-centered, gospel-focused church. That's the best thing that you can do. Practice healthy church. Everywhere I go, people ask, what, what can we do for you? I always say, be a strong, healthy church. Take hold of Jesus fully, totally. Do not be half-hearted in your commitment to Him. Love God totally with your whole lives. It's what the world needs today. What the world needs now is strong and healthy supporting churches, living out the model of what strong and healthy churches can be for other churches. The whole world of mission can only happen when they're supported by cross-center, gospel-focused churches that know how to major on the majors, not on the minors. There's too many, too many Christians out there shooting mice. Don't shoot mice. Be about the big things of God, the big things of leadership. The choice of a kingdom is before you. Choose Christ. Choose Christ. It's what the world needs now. Let's pray. Lord God, we oh, desperately need your leadership in our lives. We desperately need it here in Henson. We would pray, Father God, that you would raise us up in a generation that is lost and hurting and without hope who are apart from you. We would pray, Father, that you would use us, this church, to provide leadership in a world in chaos. We trust you to that end, Lord Jesus, King Jesus. Amen.